everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to build substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm on staff here. And in this episode, Nick Gibson, Nicole Kyle, and I are talking about the question, is, it, is Christianity a force for good? This is originally a talk that Nick gave for Abundant Life Christian School in Madison. And it also might be a question in your own mind or something that you've encountered in your relationships at work or at school or in your evangelistic relationships, so we wanted to talk about it. In this conversation, uh, we reference Nick's presentation and specifically a list of 23 uh, contributions to society from Christians, and we don't cover all of them, but we do reference some numbers um, in the list. So that's linked in the show notes, as well as some books that Nick also references. Uh, we hope that this episode builds confidence in your own faith and also um, a way for you to contextualize your faith to others in your relationships. I'm Jill Reese. I'm on the staff team here, and I'm here with Nicole Kyle. Hello. And, hello, Nicole. And Nick Gibson. Good and one. And uh, Nick, this morning, did a talk for one of our um, Christian school chapels on the question of, is Christianity good? And it's fresh on his mind, so we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, before that, Nick, why don't you give a little bit, you were saying this before, but why don't you give a little bit of why this matters for mm, the Christian yes. today? Why this question matters? Yeah. So if you went back 30 or 40 years, questions put to Christians would have been things like, how can we know the resurrection happened? How do you know the Bible's true? Those sorts of questions, questions related to facts and truth. And, um, edu- Christian education or the education of people and things Christian has been so abominably bad that, people are generally entirely ignorant of Christian things. And so they can't even, they don't even know how to ask the questions anymore. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's that. And the fact that because we've moved in a more political direction as a country, um, the the things on people's minds, is this good or bad? Is this good Mm -hmm. for people? Is it bad for people? As opposed to, is it true or is it false? Because of that, Christians are getting a lot more morally based questions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's partly because of the politicalization. I think it's partly because of being intellectually lazy, mm-hmm. because these are the easiest questions to ask and kick around, and they directly connect with what we the freedom we really want for ourselves, which is moral freedom. Mm-hmm. And so there are a bunch of reasons surrounding that. And so I think Christians have to prepare themselves not to, to just to ask classic apologetics questions like I mentioned before, but things like is Christianity a force for good or mm-hmm. is God good. Mm-hmm. Right. So it sounds like you're saying when people uh, ask the question, is Christianity good, good of a Christian and they don't think it's good. So they're wondering if it, it, how we think it is. What is the question they're actually wondering about? If that's not the real question. Yeah. Well, I think that I think it, it's a it's a statement in form of a question. It is mm-hmm. somebody basically saying, don't you know that Christianity is a terrible mm-hmm. force for evil in the world and not a force for good? And therefore we should just stop believing it and move on to something better. Hmm. Um, I think that's what it is. I yeah. think that's the subtext. And they, and they ask it as a question and then you're supposed to be speechless. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about whether or not that is a helpful question to ask. But one thing oh. that you said that I think would be helpful, you said that's the easier question to ask. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why that's the easier question to ask from, if it's a non-Christian who wants to ask is Christianity good? 
As what opposed may- to fact or truth-based questions? Yeah. Yeah, well, because the minute you act, ask fact or truth-based questions, if you ask, ask, ask a fact-based question, you have to have evidence and education. You have to have learned, right? And if you ask a question about truth, you have to have thought. Whereas mm-hmm. because most people believe that the most basic moral pillars are essentially intuitional or emotional. Most people do their morality emotively. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they know for sure whether things are good or bad immediately without analysis. And so they think they can say things like socialism is good and Christianity is bad and you shouldn't slut shame people and homosexuality is great if people really feel it deeply and blah, blah, blah. I mean, just anything. It's just like, oh, I know what's, I know what's good and bad. Right. And they just have no idea. Sometimes it's because they're young and they haven't lived out the results of what they have intuitively thought was probably good. Um, or other people have mostly paid the price for it so far, or they just mm-hmm. haven't realized that ethical philosophy is just as complicated as any other philosophy, um, but just functions somewhat differently. Mm-hmm. So as somebody who has taken graduate level courses in ethical philosophy, mm-hmm. um, I know that that's really foolish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also 41 years of life would have taught me that if I hadn't taken coursework in it. Well, and I think this is something that I, you've preached about in sermons we've talked about here, but that... While empathy can be a really good and useful, helpful thing, it can also be something that paralyzes you from action for the true good of somebody. And I think that plays into this Mm -hmm. question of perceived good morality. When you see someone who you think Mm -hmm. is hurting in a particular way, but you haven't thought about long-term implications or something like that. Yeah, I mean, empathy is the feeling that somebody who helps another person stand up to a bully because they could have been bullied. Mm-hmm. feels it's also what members of a lynch mob feel for one another as they hang that other person mm-hmm. right because they don't want their women being approached mm-hmm. by such a man that's still empathy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean like mm-hmm. they're feeling for other feelings of other people but if especially when empathy feels empathy for a third party towards or against a second party mm-hmm. that's still the human because empathy is an instinct remember it's not yeah it's not an ethical category it's a human instinct it's a healthy human instinct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it still can be used for good or ill, like any human instinct. And so unless you have moral categories directing your empathy, your empathy, your empathy is liable to lead to, I mean, people who supported communism felt empathetically for the Russian serf and so on. What it, the result of that was the death of millions of people, right? Empathy, but of course, empathy leads people to want to mm-hmm. adopt and mm-hmm. to like not have affairs with people that aren't their husbands mm-hmm. and wives who are married to other people and have children other in their families, you know? Right. So empathy can be an incredibly helpful instinct when mm-hmm. it's rooted in a character which is what christian christianity mm-hmm. teaches we should be doing yeah and we could do you think it's true that we could see this question asked and uh, we can see that person with empathy by recognizing that it's an emotional question on their behalf there's probably something emotionally going on they think that they are being logical but there's really we, you've also talked about in sermons how we often think with our emotions and don't realize we're thinking with our emotions. We think we're being very logical. And so to mm-hmm. see that person as probably having experienced something that leads to these beliefs um, and to try to get at what is really going on in their lives. Yeah, I, I think that that's partly true. I, but I also think that people thinking with their emotions is the normal phenomenon of a society that doesn't focus on rational yeah. thought and mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. So I think that it could be that somebody had a personal experience, a harmful personal mm-hmm. experience. So like they had a terrible pastor 
or something and they yeah. they were subjected to an extremely fundamentalist kind of religion or a so you know something mm-hmm. bad like that it also could just be they were brought up in a culture where it was mm-hmm. made very clear that if you're a christian you will be othered you'll be yeah. treated like an outcast you'll be hated like jesus was hated and that and nobody wants that everybody nobody wants to be disenfranchised mm-hmm. right and people want to feel like all the doors are open to them and that they'll be accepted and they won't have to hide their beliefs from other people and so there's just that basic fear, that instinct of wanting to belong that leads people to behave as everyone else behaves. And in this case, this would be, the, I think, the majority behavior in America yeah. of people just doing their, especially the, the younger you get among adult cohorts. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. It's helpful to know what's behind. The yeah. Question. So I think in many cases, it's not a particular one. But I think when you get in discussion, you should start with the possibility that it could be one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, let's jump in a little bit to some more in depth on this topic. So one of the things that you were able to talk about this morning is why that question has a lot of different things jammed together. Yeah. So one of the things I said is the question is Christianity a force for good. Um, at least four of those words need to be way better defined in order for you to know what that question Mm -hmm. is talking about. So right. The word, what counts as Christianity, right. Mm -hmm. Is an important question because there's Christianity has always suffered from massive nominalism. People who, Right, we've had whole yeah. countries we called Christian countries. So does that mean any action of that country is an action of Christianity? Plus, of course, people are diversely made up of motivations. So, what motivated any person particularly in any particular action? Like, was that Christianity? Was that that they were a woman or a man or intellectual or British or you like? Yeah, it's hard to like sort that all out. And so, um, what counts as Christianity is difficult. Also, what counts. Um, as evidence for force. Like it, if you hmm. say Christianity is a force for good, well, what counts as a force? Is that a social movement? Is, is that, you know, like, is that, is that just the work of um, something that you can call a social movement, like civil rights? Well, what about your grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. If your grandmother was motivated Christianly to love you deeply and to guide you in certain ways, she was a force for good. So if you have one grandmother ever who was a force for good, does that mean Christianity has been a force for good or does it have to, are we saying as a whole or like, mm-hmm. is it more, is it, is it 51% or more good versus 49% bad, yeah. which is a calculation that seems like inconceivably complicated. Yeah. Right. So, um, and then how causal does it have to be the word for it's a, it's a force for good. Like how causal does the Christianity have to be to count? And then this assumes we know what good is. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you want to look at it scientifically, what's the counterfactual? Like, if you want to know if Christianity had an effect for good in Britain, you'd have to have, like, another Britain on Earth, too, that, like, had everything Britain has except the only thing it doesn't have is Christianity. And then you'd have to be able to somehow compare the two, right? Which is, of course, impossible. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's a, there's a much bigger set of issues concerning analysis. Like, yeah. do we even know how to do this analysis? And the answer is mm-hmm. no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, when I was a college student, I was a part of a campus ministry and we did a lot of, uh, we learned a lot about having conversations with other people about Christianity, whether it was a non-Christian or a younger Christian or whatever it was. And one of the things that I remember the specific training um, was talking about how so many times when Jesus was asked a question especially if it was a particular type of question, his response was another question. Mm -hmm. And I think what that taught me was that 
I should be really slow in trying to answer questions when I'm asked them. Again, whether it's by someone who's doubting, who who really wants to sort these things mm-hmm. out, or if it's someone who's asking antagonistically, or even someone who's asking in curiosity. And I think this is a good example of a question that if you're having this conversation, there's a lot you've got to sort out first. And yeah. so it probably means asking a question back of them. Well, what is yeah. what does good mean? Or I mean, exactly these questions you just Yeah, they, I mean, posed. there really should be four or five questions that you kind of normally ask back. Mm-hmm. And, and you should probably ask a question back almost half the time. Right. Especially if you're talking to younger adults, like millennials and th- mm-hmm. those cohorts, because their thinking is, you, you never know what they're thinking or why they're thinking yeah. it, right? And they don't know how deep or shallow their thoughts are oftentimes. So, so like, you know, and, and just the question, why do you ask me that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is like, or what, what motivates you asking mm-hmm. that question or that question sounds a little bit more like a statement. Yeah. One of the, questions, are you asserting something or are you asking something? Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I like to ask back is, well, what do you think? Right. <laughs> and that'll tell you a lot. Yeah, right. That's it, really yeah. Good. I think in crew, sometimes they'll teach them like, if you thought God exists, how do you think God would have answered, would answer that? And by putting the responsibility, because part of the issue with questions is who is taking responsibility here? Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you want people to recognize is if you're going to be a, a honest individual, you have to take responsibility for your questions. They're not somebody mm-hmm. else's job or somebody else's fault. And you are morally obligated if you ask a serious question to exert a certain amount of effort and desire to find the truth, which is your job. Other people can help you, but they can only be your ally. They can't be responsible. And what oftentimes happens is people want to transfer responsibility. And what that communicates is they don't want to believe something. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, they should just say, I don't want to believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I, it, part, so part of answering questions wisely is helping people recognize what their motivations really are, which they often don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... How is, how would you answer that question or begin answering that question? That Christ, if Christianity is good, how do we explain to people that it is? So if it was, if I was talking to somebody that thought of themselves as an intellectual, mm-hmm. I would spend time deconstructing the question. Mm-hmm. I would talk about how many questions are on that question. And then I would talk about the analysis problem of like mm-hmm. trying to do the analysis. Like, um, Why don't you th- talk a little bit more about that? Okay, yeah, so like, what is that? So if there's a so I had I did like five in the talk. So one was um, the problem of historical analysis and reporting. So our analysis of history, is, of course, is not correct, right? Hmm. We have very limited historical sources. Most of history we can't analyze well, so we can't analyze it right. And of course, history is not evenly and conscientiously reported, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have a reporting structure where we're all learning history in a completely objective way, reported to us all the time. There are lots of incredibly helpful things to Christians in academic historiography that will never be reported to you and you'll never be able to find for example unless somebody goes and finds them and brings them mm-hmm. to you so like our direct access to history is problematic S- second is the single causation fallacy you see this in like um you know sort of like the populist republican person saying like well it's because we shipped all our jobs to china hmm. that the economy got worse or yeah. the progressivist would say well if we you know if we give black kids a good warm environment at school they'll do better right and most of the major problems that we have in human society are not single causation yeah. they're multifaceted there's tons of different mm-hmm. causes and that's one of the reasons why that they're the problems are so sticky right mm-hmm. you would like poverty is a problem mm-hmm. we've never like jesus literally said you'll never solve this <laughs> Right. Yeah. And like, there's part of me that's like, like the, the early Soviets were like, we're going to solve it. 
There have been these movements of like these utopian movements yes. that are like, we're going to solve this. There will be no more poor people. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> you mm-hmm. might always have poor people, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, some of these problems are extremely sticky because they're multi-causational. We don't completely understand them. And that's true mm-hmm. for this one. Like if you say, why did, why did the Holocaust happen? And to what extent is that related to European Christianity? Nobody has any idea how complicated a question that is yeah. because the multi-causalities of how Germany went crazy, why France didn't do more. Different do, perceptions too right, from everyone. Right. And do you yeah. count the Lutheran clergy that would tended to be pro-Nazi mm-hmm. as the Christians or do you count mm-hmm. the confessing church under Bonhoeffer and others who confessed the Bible and are they the Christians and bo- aren't they both Christians and blah, right? And was the anti-Semitism in Germany because of Lutheranism? Or did anti-Semitism come into Lutheranism because anti-Semitism preceded Luther? Mm-hmm. Or or was Luther not really anti-Semitic? He made one statement in the table talk, but because people wanted to be anti-Semitic, they attributed that to Luther because they wanted to they wanted him as the authority. Or was, of course, all of the quote scientific stuff that showed that mm-hmm. Jews and Irish people were unevolved and lesser than everybody else, that was all coming out of more secularized, irreligious scientific communities that had virtually nothing to do with Christianity. But that was the scientific basis on which Jews were seen as inferior and worth killing. So like there were a lot of freaking causes, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a it is a mark of shallow intellectualism and thinking to think that you can say, oh, there was this one causality. Yeah. But that cuts both ways. That means when we Christians say, hey, Christianity had this effect, we have to demonstrate not just that a Christian did it or a Christian group, a, a vaguely Christian group did it, but that it was Christianity that was motivating it, right? Which yeah. is a, a more difficult proof. Yeah. Um, third is, is that it, true things don't always produce good results. So if you say, well, is it good? Well, it maybe it's not good yet. So for example, the law, right? The mm-hmm. Bible says the law was good. Mm-hmm. But when the law was given to sinful human beings, uh, we used it badly. And we made ourselves worse. Yeah. But when you put the law together with the gospel and the spirit, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden we can live in such a way as we fulfill the law. So when you've got the three causalities working together, you get good. So you could have something like the law that's 100% true, but that's supposed to work together with a couple of other things. And if you add in a couple other negative things, something that's fully true that we should believe in, that we should follow, could be creating bad results at least right now in how we're applying it. So yeah. even in situations where you can say, look, Christianity, quote, had a bad result, it might have nothing to do with Christianity, mm-hmm. right? And that's a difficult analysis problem. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, of course, is when you say, is it good? You're assuming you know what good is. Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're also assuming that you can predict good well, right? I mean, if you go back to the dawn of the 20th century and you said, hey, if we have these governments that are, that are vaguely socialist, that will redistribute resources and where everybody will be working together for a good human society within these countries, like in Italy and Spain and Germany and the Soviet Union, won't this produce much better lives for everybody? It'll be like in the Bible where the those who had little didn't have too little and those who had much didn't have too much, mm-hmm. right? Except 100 years later, here's what we found out, that if you add up all of the government murders of all of those countries, it's more than 100 million. And just since 1990, free markets have lifted more than 1.1 billion people out of extreme poverty. What actually happened was free markets where people were responsible for themselves and could end up in economic ruin lifted more people out of extreme poverty and more people into a global middle class than all of the Soviet, all of the socialist ones and all of the socialist ones have destroyed everyone's lives. And um, that's what actually happened. 
And so um, sometimes people think they know what's the, what's the good and what will produce the good. And okay. in the short term, they think it will produce the good. But most of the things like in modern American culture, people are like, well, is Christianity good on this, 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 and this? Hmm. Most of those things in 70 years, people won't think are good anymore. Yeah. Like the idea that we should take six-year-olds that think they might be transgendered and like give them puberty blockers mm-hmm. and double mastectomies at 16 and turn them into men like as best we can. That Like in 70 years, maybe less, maybe more, our grandchildren are going to look back and say that was the most hor- they'll they'll, yeah. they'll see that like lobotomies they'll say that was so mm-hmm. such yeah. horrifically mutilated it's terrible but right now a 23 year old grad student at uw will look at you and think if christianity doesn't affirm that it's incredibly evil mm-hmm. I, I i have real hope that someday soon people will see that in in utero child dismemberment what we call abortion mm-hmm. with that euphemism um is one of the most horrific practices ever practiced on planet earth. Mm-hmm. And Christianity has, abor- has, has abolished it two or three times in history and it keeps coming back. Yeah. And I think the day will come and not that long. I hope where people will realize what an atrocity it is. Um, if you look at places like Iceland in, and, um, and Sweden where you have high atheist populations, um, there are no disabled kids among the children anymore. Mm. And anything that you can find in utero is like not perfect. They abort the child. And so in, like in Iceland, there are no more Down syndrome kids. They've, mm. There's zero. And um, that scene is like this great public health advancement. And it's a barbaric horror of moral proportions yeah. that are disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I want to be on the wrong side of history, mm. even if people mm-hmm. never turn around. But my hope is, is that we will come out of our mass delusion and our moral hysteria and we will realize how barbaric we have been. So there, there are some cases in which people are like, well, is Christianity good? And you're like, dude, if you, you don't even know what good is. You have no right. idea what good is. <laughs> right. And so I don't have to live up to your thing. Yeah. I think the modern sexual ethic is, the, is like the, the central crux of that. Yeah. It, re, it re, revolves around LGBTQ issues, mm-hmm. but it's really mostly about all the heterosexual sex with, without strings attached people think they want to have and yet they don't want it to be destructive. Mm-hmm. That impossibility that they've been pursuing since the 1960s at least, which is destroying the lives of many, many, yeah. many young people and their sexualities and their sense of themselves, that we're not on board with that and they know deep down we're right is very traumatic for mm-hmm. them personally and their moral thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think these are good, also good examples of what, um, kind of the culmination of what you're saying that the analysis of what is good whether or not you know the effect something will have they're just so complicated and so mm-hmm. for someone who is res- on the receiving end of this question even if the person you're talking to doesn't understand how complicated of a question mm-hmm. they're asking you need to know that it yeah. how complicated it is yeah. to yeah. be able to have a helpful conversation yes. with this person mm-hmm. I think it's also true when you're teaching younger Christians because if younger Christians say, Hey, why people ask me like, why is Christianity good? And if you say, well, Christianity was integrally involved in the abolition of slavery in the 1700s and in civil rights. And like you go through a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that when they go to college, their sociology professor, their psychology, their philosophy professor is going to deconstruct that to the next level of sophistication. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to look back at us and they're going to be like, Oh, I guess Nick and Nicole and Jill and whoever were kind of simplistic about all of this. And they didn't really understand mm-hmm. there was this deeper level right. of analysis. So that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I started off with this in my talk, even down to sixth graders. I was like, look, yeah. the, there's a deeper level of analysis because I want you to know that because I'm going to give you the answer at the level of analysis you're at right now. 
But as you get on to deeper ones, it gets a lot more complicated. Yeah. I want them to know that. And they, mm-hmm. I want them to know that I know that. So that when they get onto these deeper levels of analysis, they will actually realize that their sociology professor isn't going deep enough. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because they almost never are. So what we've talked about how the question is very complicated. What are some things we can point to that does show Christianity is a force for good? I know we can I mean, the, co- yeah. the question is complicated. No, but there what are is, some evidences but there, yeah, of there that? Is a, not just a history, but a heritage yeah. for Christians about the good that Christian faith has done and the good that Christian saints have done and therefore the good that Jesus has done mm-hmm. through us in the world. And sometimes you get these kind of disingenuous quotes like from Bertrand Russell when he, you know, he says, you know, I take Lucretius's view that, um, that, you know, religion was born out of fear and has done nothing but like irreparable harm on humanity. But, you know, I can think of two, you know, things religion has done. I think it got us helped to straighten out the calendar at one point and Egyptian priests somewhere, um, you know, looked at eclipses carefully enough that they could predict them. I appreciate that, but that's all the contribution religions ever Mm -hmm. made. When you get that kind of like, unforgivably ignorant stupidity kind of village atheist approach it is helpful to be like well let me give you 25 examples of positive things <laughs> yeah. christianity has done so um you, you want me to rattle through some and then you can like slow me down on some or something like that sure yeah so virtually all the char- the charitable societies that have been around for any significant period of time were all started by Christians. A lot of them have been reappropriated into secularist hands since the progressive period, but they were mostly started. So the YMCA, obviously the Red Cross, um, but uh, also like places like Harvard and Yale and the and a lot of even like this sort of very liberal and progressive charitable organizations now mm-hmm. were started by evangelical millionaires. And then their foundations that they set up were then taken over by mm-hmm. modern day progressivists. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because in the 1920s, progressivism felt like Christianity, but the actual, the making of the money was done by a Christian. And then the deciding that that huge fortune should be given over to the good of society and mm-hmm. made into a foundation was done by the evangelical Christian. In that and specific way. In that yeah. specific way. And mm-hmm. then in the concatenations of the foundation working out, new people got on the board and moved it in a progressive direction. But what all the progressives did was take over and move it in a different direction, usually in ways that cause harm rather than good. But in the beginning, the reason that money is there, the reason that good is being done is because an evangelical Christian made a pile of money, decided to be philanthropic about it, created a foundation and so on. Okay. Mm-hmm. So secondly, there've been a lot, there's been a lot of Christians bringing light to global oppression that otherwise would have been hidden. A lot of this happened during what we call the imperialist era. So like John Patton living among the cannibals in the New Hebrides, he was the only European who lived among them. Mm-hmm. And so when European traders came in and abused and misused them, he was the only person capable of writing in English back to Australia, alerting people of their misuse of these peoples. Otherwise, no one would have known about it. And the sailors could have told whatever stories they wanted. Same thing with Alice and John Harris in the Congo. They were Baptist missionaries. They were in the Congo. Belgian soldiers were cutting off the hands and whipping people to death because they weren't getting enough rubber out of the out of the wild rubber forest areas. And these British missionaries that weren't Congolese, they wrote back to the mission societies and they told people about the horrors of what was going on in the Congo. And the horrors didn't go away entirely, but they were dramatically lessened and the Congolese government had to go over to rubber farming rather than, than torturing people to go in the forest mm-hmm. and find it, which was only like 60% less oppressive than what they were doing before. But... That's a, that's a real difference. Mm-hmm. There are no utopias, right? We're always going from worse to less worse mm-hmm. in certain ways. There's um, one that you have on here that for me 
as a millennial who went to a large public university that I'm like, mm, I'd like to hear a little more about this. Number seven, great reformers of schooling, hospice, yeah. hostels, hospitals. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, if you if you go back to each in each one of those movements and you look at who founded it and how it developed, what you're going to find usually is an evangelical Christian. And for most of them, you're going to find that uh, uh, well, for for like school reform and prison reform, most of those are going to go back to the Great mm-hmm. Evangelical Awakening, um, out of method that Methodist revival mm-hmm. in Britain and in America. Um, that it, when that revival was happening, Methodism in particular had a strong social preaching thing. Um, Wesley would have would have believed in something like. Um, what's the word we use now? Like social justice. Mm-hmm. He, he yeah. would, he, you know, he would not have agreed with our definition of it. What do you, he would say Christianity should affect society in such a way as that people are treated with more dignity and with more humanity. Right. And so that led people out of those movements to do that. I don't remember all the names. Um, Catherine Booth obviously was involved. Mm-hmm. Salvation army um, yeah. came about mm-hmm. a little bit later. Um, they did a lot of prison reform and a lot of work with people who were down and out, a lot of charitable stuff. Remember that mm-hmm. until, um, until the federalization of welfare programs, which comes fairly late in American history mm-hmm. in the, in the 19, like starts in the thirties, but it really ramps up a lot after that. And it really ramps up after the 1950s and 1960s before that, almost all charity done in America was done by Jews and Christians, mm-hmm. just all of it. Um, and, and when you got to the progressive era, the belief that the belief in holding poor people accountable for their change, making them work for their bread, those kinds of ideas that are built into the Bible too, um, was very, um, they hated those ideas. They mm-hmm. thought that they were, they, they thought they treated the poor without dignity rather than as Christians believe that telling a man he has to work for his bread is giving him dignity. Mm-hmm. If and only if you give him work to do to get his bread. And so that's when they had things like workhouses that like Dickens humiliated and made fun of in um, the Christmas Carol, right? Yeah. When the people come up in, in Ebenezer Scrooge says, well, aren't there workhouses, right? And there were problems with workhouses in the sense that like if you had a family, you couldn't bring your whole family mm-hmm. to live there and so on. But what a workhouse was is a place where you could go work a couple of hours and earn your dinner and then you could get your dinner. Mm-hmm. Is that less dignified than somebody going to a soup kitchen and just getting dinner, having laid, having like walked the streets all day? Right. Yeah. So anyway, the, the point of that is, is that before the progressivist era and before the era of the national welfare state, virtually all of charity was delivered by religious people, mainly yeah. Christians, mainly well, not mainly evangelical Christians, but evangelical Christians did a lot more than people think. But because they didn't do it through the government, their story is rarely told. Almost all of the missions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like the soup kitchens and the hostels and stuff like that were started by Christians. One thing as you're talking that is coming to my mind that I would think would be an easy rebuttal to some of the things that you're saying are, well, yeah, but a, a lot of this was stuff that happened decades ago, if not even farther than that. And so I, I think it'd be helpful for you to speak a little bit to why that why that's the way that these examples are and i think some of it is because we don't know the (laughs) we talked about this already we don't know what all the ramifications of what evangelical christians are doing today will be but i do think that that's a common argument that an evangelical christian would hear is that yeah but where are you right now yeah well uh, there's a bunch of answers that that's another one of those multi-causal deals right um so on one level what the welfare state has done in western society is drain charitable the the money used for charitable work off into the government coffers for programs designated and determined by the government right mainly done by people the government believes are sufficiently expert to do so and there are a lot of perverse incentives and reasons for that right the government then gets to say we did this and people 
get to say my party was for this and we care about these people because we are spending this money that we extracted from the population on these people. And there's a lot of this like distributed cost and focus benefit, like economic perversions and things like that. And so um, when, co- when countries do that, countries like Sweden, for example, that has like a, like a 70% tax rate, what it does is it, it actually takes out of individual people's hands the capacity for financial charity and puts it all into the government, right? And so what it tends to do is massively not only demotivate people from wanting to give to charity because the government is taking all this money to do it, it also tends, the government tends to block people out of charity. Hmm. Um, so, uh, for example, schooling is like this in America when there aren't vouchers. So, like, I have to pay for schooling twice if I send my kid to a Christian school. So we can start a school as an act of charity in a poor community, right? But the government is going to still take the money from the people in that community and put that money into the government school, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of kind of perversions like that where secularity has kind of sucked all the mm-hmm. oxygen out of the room by steal, like essentially stealing all the money. Mm-hmm. And then they've used it how they want to. And then they say, now where are you? Well, you took all my money to do the stuff you want to do with it that isn't working, and now you have the gall to turn to me and say, what am I doing? And a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff you created, like there's no question that the welfare state has created the dissolution of the black family and a lot mm-hmm. of these other things. Now there's other causes too, but the strongest correlation of dissolution of the black family is the is is welfare and the increase of the welfare state. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. The public housing related to it, um, paying people who didn't have men in the household and so on. Mm-hmm. So, but see that, the here's the problem. You start making that argument and that becomes a political argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem is it is a political argument, but it shouldn't really be a Republican-Democrat argument. It's a statism versus freedom argument. And the problem is, is that w- that's why I say the politicization of all things has become important in the Christian yeah. discussion right. because the more everything is inside the state, nothing outside the state, the definition of fascism by Mussolini, his definition of fascism, mm-hmm. um, the more our government resembles that, the less any, indivi- any individual group of people can freely say we're doing this. Right? Like when was the last time the Kiwanis Club or the Mm. even a hundred black men could be like, We're doing this. Yeah. Like they're still paying something like fifty to sixty five percent of their money to the American government. And don't forget don't forget it's not just your income taxes and your property taxes going to the American government. Mm -hmm. Everything you buy has five or six levels of tax in it besides the sales tax that you pay. So the and if you go back to eighteen eighty my family's entire federal tax bill would in modern dollars would have been around twenty dollars. Okay, I paid $10,000 just in my house. So if you go back to a time like 1880, the federal government was incredibly small. And so people entered into voluntary societies and did what they believed was right. Mm -hmm. Well, the good thing about that was, was the right people got credit for stuff. Hmm. That's a huge difference. And so when evangelicals did stuff with their money for their reasons, and it was good and people benefited from it, they got credit for it. Hmm. And if atheists had done, they would have gotten credit for it. Mm-hmm. Now, when everything gets sucked into the government, the government is doing all of it. And then they blame each other and take credit <laughs> right. over each other. Mm-hmm. And nobody really knows what's really happening because right. it's all too complicated and built into these massive bureaucracies mm-hmm. that are completely unaccountable. And that's one of the reasons why Christians have for so long been believers in what's called the subsidiary principle that everything should be done the most local level mm-hmm. possible on the most voluntary yeah. level possible. It's not because we don't believe in charity. Mm-hmm. We have always been the vanguard of charity in America. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. It's because of all these other things I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too that the more that you distance yourself from an actual local church, that what yeah. this means is that the more you distance yourself, 
the less you're going to be able to see what actual Christians yes. are doing with their lives yes. and ways that they are participating in being a force for good. Yeah, um, and that gets back to the the um, millennial fallacy of move, movementism. Yeah. That like your advocacy is your moral portfolio mm-hmm. rather than your behavior mm-hmm. in the realm of personal ethics and virtue. And that, I mean, that's just right. something you just have to keep clarifying with people. Right. Yeah. I don't give a crap who you tweet about. <laughs> right. What I want to know is, do you treat people well? Do you love your neighbor? Do you, are you willing to serve and love people that you would disagree with? Do you, mm-hmm. Like, what kind of person are you really? Right. Yeah. In little things and things related to sacrifice. And then, yeah, advocacy is like one piece of that. But for the most part, advocacy is so complicated in the world we live in. Almost nobody knows enough to even know what they ought to advocate for. Yeah. Another thing that what you're saying also reminds me of um, twenty number 20 on your list, which is inventors of most universal understanding of human dignity. And so I think that's also why it's important for the local church not to get captured by political um, like political viewpoints as the uh, as the good or the way to the means for the good, I guess, um, because if you look at the gospel in the Bible, the beauty of human dignity goes not just to infants who are unborn, but like uh, the elderly and mm-hmm. every ethnicity. And right. um, so it, the immigrant, yeah, the immigrant, mm-hmm. it's, it's not captured by a political party. It's what Jesus is about. It's, it's who Jesus is for and who's come for is everyone. And so um, I think it's also just equally as important to, for the local church not to get captured by. Yeah. Those and that political... all human beings are made in the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we're image bearers of a holy God. Yeah. We don't just bear the image of God, but that the, the God whose image we bear is a good and morally serious God. Mm-hmm. And we are bound to be morally, morally serious creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's affirmed in Christ's death for mm-hmm. us again. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it, it, see, that's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to be not politically captured yeah. as Christians and as the church and yet to be politically prudent yeah, and right. recognizing what's going on yeah. around us, knowing and discerning the times and knowing how we should behave. Right. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Whether it is, whether or not we should reject Donald Trump as our, as a leader in our country, whether it's, we should reject the statism of the of mm-hmm. the growing statism mm-hmm. or, or whether or not something called democratic socialism mm-hmm. is really going to be different than socialism. Or, or some of it's just history. Like, I've seen a number of newspapers saying that the fall of Venezuela was be, not because Venezuela was socialist, but because it was a kleptocracy, and it was full of crony capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what always happens in every socialist government. It's like they don't understand the history of socialism. That socialism happens first, then you get the most ruthless players always come to the top within a socialist system. They then make deals to get rich from the bigger movers and shakers in business. So socialism becomes a kleptocracy always. That's why the Politburo used to drive around in Rolls Royces and you had to stand in line at 7 a.m. in the Soviet Union to buy milk, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Socialism always becomes a kleptocracy. And for people like who are in like occupations like journalism to not understand the basic development of how socialism begins, ages, and dies Mm -hmm. after the 20th century is just an unconscionable thing. And so I think one of the th- reasons, and one of the reasons why, so to put this back on the issue of what Christians have done, one of the reasons I know that is because I've read biographies of Christians who lived under socialism. Mm-hmm. And most millennial Christians have not done so. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So um, if you, the one I liked the best was probably Tortured for His Faith by Harlan Popov, but Tortured for Christ by Richard Vermbrandt is also really good. God Smuggler, I think it's Brother mm-hmm. Andrew who wrote that. There's a number mm-hmm. of these historical biograph- biographical books that talk about the lives of Christians under tyranny in places like Romania and Poland and Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. And by re- you get to the encouragement of reading Christian biography, but you also recognize like what really goes on. And of course that's quite aside from the fact that mm-hmm. everyone should read the abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If you are a Christian living in this age where socialism is kind of becoming popular again, socialism has always destroyed the church. Always, 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 always. There has never been a version of socialism that did not make it an enemy of the church and an enemy of the family are two divine institutions. Mm. So listen, I'm not saying Democrats are bad. Okay. There is, there are like three tweaks I would want to make to the democratic party and I would vote for it every time. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not like, I think that there's nothing in that the democratic party represents a temperament in the human spirit, the liberal temperament. Like Mm -hmm. we need to do more. We need to care about these people. We need to do stuff. Mm -hmm. The Republican or conservative side is represents the sort of like productive, um, accountability sentiment Mm -hmm. and temperament. And and those are supposed to be kind of at war with each other. That's good. Mm -hmm. Socialism is different and it has always destroyed the family. It has always destroyed the church and Christians should always, always be against it. In my view, Mm -hmm. there are things on the political right. There are certain kinds of like crony capitalism where government starts to work together with, and that, that can happen when socialism isn't happening. Mm -hmm. Um, You get that in advocacy state and so on. I think we should always be against that too, because that always produces injustice. Mm -hmm. But that kind of that's the thing people want to be interested in politics they want to watch cable news but they don't want to actually learn about the history of political movements and what's actually happened mm-hmm. and those are very different things does that yeah. make sense yeah i think to hearing that what you brought up initially jill about this and then nick what you said it's just this is a ex- great example of why the church can't be polarized politically and yeah. be about a political yeah. party or agenda because it's always incomplete right. and that's not Yep. Our job. Yep. Right, right. If you could get rid of the Republican Party in America, America would not be healthier. If you could yeah. get rid of the Democratic Party in America, America would not be healthier. Mm. The, the nature of the tension of those two. I mean, in, so, in some ways, this is overly simplistic. There's a reason why women vote like 35% more Democrat than Republican and men 25 or 30% more Republican than Democrat. Because the Democratic Party embodies more of the feminine spirit mm-hmm. and the Republican Party tends to embody more of the masculine mm-hmm. spirit. Like it's, they are complementary states mm-hmm. of being and so what we need to do is figure out what is the virtuous version mm-hmm. of the democratic impulse mm-hmm. what is the virtuous version of the republican impulse and how can we like re-enliven a virtuous expression mm-hmm. of both of those groups and then allow right. them to be in complementary yeah. contest with each other in a healthy mm-hmm. way that's possible but it's only possible if you can see more than just like everybody else bad my team good right, right. yeah so um to wrap up so jesus does promise us that we'll be hated because he was hated, but also um, the gospel is the good news. And so, um, how well, how does the Bible teach us like what we can do to demonstrate the good news? Um, I know you had some. You mean the, the, yeah, yeah so you had some references. First Peter two eleven and twelve says, <clears throat> "Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul." Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of, of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, I mean, obviously that covers a number of yeah, things. One right. is we are aliens and strangers in the world. We should always see ourselves as exiles in that sense. We're never going to fully belong. Um, 
that we, like everybody else, are going to have evil desires warring against our soul. That's true of our neighbors. It's also true of us, right? And we have to abstain from them by whatever means. We should spiritually, the rest of the Bible tells us how to do that. And these things war against your soul. It's never going to be easy. It's going to be ongoing, even though you're a believer. And we also need to be compassionate about the war that's going on in the souls of everybody else. Yeah. Right. If your if your neighbor isn't a believer, they have the same war in their soul. They just don't have the work that the Spirit helping them overcome it in the same sort of way. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Which should elicit compassion, right? And then he says, "Look, you need to individually live in such a way, and as a local church, live in such a way, as that your good deeds." Um, among the pagans that that they it will win them over mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. even though they accuse you yeah. right so like it, it's not okay to say i go to uw or i go to work mm-hmm. people know i'm a christian they treat me badly so screw them <laughs> right. right if they were nicer to me mm-hmm. i would show them the goodness of christ mm-hmm. no 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 the pagans are going to accuse you of stuff mm-hmm. because if they didn't, everybody's looking for a scapegoat. That's why the Nazis killed the Jews. Okay. The Jews were, were any worse than anybody else. They were just different and everybody wants to blame the problems of their life on somebody. Okay. And we are a perfect target because we forgive mm-hmm. our enemies. We turn the other cheek, mm-hmm. right? We don't, we pay yeah. evil for evil. And so we're the perfect scapegoat, right? Yeah. But that means we're also the perfect sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so um, you have to. We should expect the pagan world or the worldly world to accuse us, and those are precisely the ones we're supposed to win over by our good deeds. And that can only be done if we start with our in, inner sin. Like we have to live in godliness first. Mm-hmm. That will produce good deeds that are actually beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And that will help overcome those who accuse mm-hmm. us. And I, I want to say too to be even a little more specific if this is a real conversation you're having that means that this is not if you have someone ask this question this isn't just a time to clobber them over the head with all of these responses right. Right. that's yeah. not your goal your yeah. goal is to win them for christ right. and and that may not always happen yeah. we don't know who will accept the gospel and who won't mm-hmm. but this is an opportunity to love that specific person who may be accusing you and hating you mm-hmm. but it's not just a chance for you to yell at them. Yeah. Yeah. And we say all these reasons. I think we only talked about like three of them. But I mean, like when I did this for the kids, I listed like 23. Yeah. And that was just off the top of my head. Yeah. Of stuff I've studied over the years. So, and that doesn't include the main good of Christian faith, which is millions of Christians loving their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the things you have to remember as a Christian yes. is um, people often talk about changing the world. There is no such claim in the Bible. The message of Jesus, Jesus is supposed to go into the whole world. Mm-hmm. And in that work, we're supposed to love our neighbors and make disciples. And the main work of Christianity being good is helping mothers be better mothers, mm-hmm. helping daughters be better daughters, and husbands better husbands, and workers better workers, and to increase the functional and fundamental quality of everything around you, which creates enormous value. And it's value that when if people count beans the way the pagans do, they will never notice it. Mm-hmm. And so there's, because of it, there's an enormous amount of good that the gospel provides and that Jesus creates and that the spirit works that your neighbors just aren't going to mm-hmm. notice until God gives them the capacity to see the good works that you are doing in and with them. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you'll, we're always going to get attacked at the corporate level. Christians have, in every generation, they have been attacked at the political, the corporate, the media, the mm-hmm. public level, because we are always the perfect scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and even even in like quote Christian nations when there have been Christian nations, there was always some version of pietistic Christians that those Christians attacked. 
mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, maybe another time we can talk about like 23 or more reasons and yeah. shotgun our way through them, but hopefully this yeah. was helpful. Yeah. Thanks for being with us today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.